Welcome to Gang Gray the Podcast. I'm Stephen Kurtz. Today we're doing something different on the show. I'm filling in as a guest host for Matt Tullis, and with good reason. Over the past four years, Matt has recorded more than 50 of these interviews. He's given many authors and journalists, myself included, the chance to talk about their work, their approach to craft, and the articles and books they've published. He's created an engaging forum to discuss the art and practice of narrative nonfiction. Now it's Matt's turn to be interviewed and to talk about his own work. Earlier this month, Matt published a book, Running with Ghosts. As the subtitle says, it's a memoir of surviving childhood cancer. In the early weeks of 1991, when Matt was 15, he began to feel tired and run down. Visiting his grandparents the previous Christmas, he curled up on the living room carpet and slept all day because he didn't have the energy to do anything else. His vision blurred and he experienced disc spells in school. The symptoms became so severe that finally he was taken to the hospital where tests revealed that he had leukemia, a cancer of the blood. In Running with Ghosts, Matt, who's now 41, recounts the months he spent at Akron's Children's Hospital fighting for his life. And the years that followed, when he struggled to understand why he had survived childhood cancer when many of his fellow patients and even some of his caregivers didn't. The book is emotionally honest and moving, and although it's a personal story based on memory, it's also deeply reported. I'm pleased to welcome Matt to his own show. Well, Matt, welcome. And I guess, first of all, I should ask, um, how, how do you feel? How is your health? Uh, thanks, Stephen, for doing this. Uh, I feel I actually feel really good. Um, uh, part of that, I think, might be have something to do with the fact that I'm about to run a marathon in in eight days. Uh, so I've been running a lot this summer and, and lost a little bit of weight. But uh, from a health standpoint, uh, I feel pretty good. That's good to hear. Um, so why don't we why don't we start off with you reading a bit from your book? Um, maybe you could just tell us what, what you're going to read, set it up, and then read, and then and then we'll get into the interview. Okay, yeah. I think I'm going to read the prologue, which is basically just a little more, more than, uh, than a page long. And, and uh, I, I like it just because it really kind of sets up um, kind of why I wanted to write the book. So, When I lace up my shoes to go for a run, I lace up the shoes of ghosts from a lifetime ago. When I strap on my watch, it transports me back to a different time, a time when my ghosts were alive, when we interacted and all faced the same unknown future. When I step out into the road, they are there. Todd hobbles along, a prosthetic left leg replacing the one he lost when he was a little boy. Tim is there, and he is strong, able to keep up with me, no doubt thanks to the endless hours he spent in a pool as a high school swimmer. Melissa is there, especially when I run trails and have to be careful about picking my feet up high to avoid rocks and roots. We called it the Stork Walk in 1992, and it was necessary back then because our legs and feet were emaciated by the drugs designed to save us. Janet is there with her runner's body telling me about her children who are close to my age, 
asking me how I am feeling and whether or not I am experiencing any pain. When I run with her, I am not. Finally, there is Dr. Alex Kufus. He is big and slow, but keeps churning on alongside me, whispering into my ear that my heart is strong, that I need to keep pushing forward, that the finish line is within reach. I've run with my ghosts on back roads in rural Ohio, cutting through corn and soybean fields. I've run with them through the curving, hilly roads of southwest Connecticut, where I live now. I've run with them in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, as rain was pounding down on me. I've run with them on the beaches of the Florida Gulf Coast and on the sidewalks of Traverse City, Michigan. I've run with them on the desert plains of north central Texas in late July. I've run with them in a foot of snow in February through a cemetery and an arboretum in Worcester, Ohio, and on those paths in the summer with my son and daughter as we raced a 5K together. I've run with them in the cold morning air of Indiana just hours before my grandpa's funeral. I've run with them on the streets of Akron during a marathon where they pushed me forward toward a finish line that sat in the shadow of Akron Children's Hospital where we all came together a quarter century ago where I was saved and they were not. I cling to my ghosts because they tie me to those days when my life was in the balance. It's a time I am continually drawn to as I try to understand more about my own life and how it was shaped by a random or perhaps not blip on my DNA, a chance mutation that threw everything into chaos. They were there in that chaotic time, suffering through their own chaotic lives, and I find myself thinking about them all the time, and yet I often realize I know so little about them as well as myself. Okay, thank you for, for reading that, and um, I, I, I think it does set the book up and this idea, the, the, the title, the idea of the running with ghosts. The ghosts um, are the people that, uh, that didn't survive, right? The, 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 the patients, the fellow patients, and some of the care providers that, uh, that you lost. Yes, yeah, ab- yeah absolutely. And, and um, I want to go back to, to 1991, um, and when you're just admitted into the hospital, um, can you talk a little bit about what it felt like to have leukemia physically before you knew the illness by name? I mean, you know, we've all felt tired and run down as a kid. You experienced growing pains and, and sleeping a lot. But how was your tired different physically? And did you know on some deeper level that maybe you didn't want to sort of admit that something was seriously wrong? Yeah, and you know, I tried. I think back a lot on like when I first started feeling tired, and and my mom probably has a better idea of that than I do. But um, it, it was something that kind of came on slowly, um, and we really noticed it uh, over Christmas break, uh, especially when we went out um, uh, to visit grandparents uh, in Southwest Ohio and then Indiana. Uh, in that. Um, it, you know, it kind of initially it started as like a, a slight pain in in my in my back and side uh, that we kind of noticed whenever I I coughed or sneezed and I sn- used to sneeze a lot. I was a very loud sneezer, very violent <laughs> sneezer, um, and uh, and there would always be a little bit of a pain. Um, and then the tiredness kind of came a little bit after that, uh, which we really really noticed. Um, 
uh, out when we were visiting. Uh, and and uh, you mentioned, and I think in the introduction, uh, when I went to my grandparents in Indiana at Christmas and how I just slept on the carpet. And I think that was when um, I literally, I think that's when I finally realized that something was what might be wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Because that was like one of my favorite things to do was go out to Indiana to my grandparents uh, and eat the amazing food that my grandma made uh, and, you know, get the presents opened and, and watch football, play off football with my uncles and grandpa and dad. And I literally just slept throughout the entire thing. Uh, and then the, the, like the next day we were back in Ohio and, um, I had a youth group, uh, a church youth group lock in on new year's Eve. Uh, and I was, you know, that was something also that I always looked forward to where kids stay up all night and we drink like Mountain Dew and (laughs) Pepsi and, and eat all kinds of junk food and and just do all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, stay up all night long, and I literally curled up in a corner uh, in the in the in the in the church, and just went to sleep. And I slept all that all that night too. Uh, and that's kind of I think, like I couldn't understand why I was so tired, but I didn't really think a whole lot of it. I just I thought I had mono. Um, Mm -hmm. and my mom thought I had mono as well. And and in fact, she actually had taken me to the doctor on the Friday before new year's. Um, just because we thought I had mono, uh, which I think is what you would think any freshman high school freshman has if they want to sleep all the time. Um, we were really busy, like writing off all these other like symptoms, like the, the, the pain in my back was, Oh, you probably cracked a rib. When you were sneezing, because that's literally how loud I used to sneeze. <laughs> so that's, um, that's an intense sneeze. It's an intense sneeze. It's like the <laughs> stupidest thing ever when you think about it. But that's really what we talked about. And um, and like uh, you know, the tiredness. Oh, you must have mono. You high school freshman. Um, uh, uh, and you know, um, and those were the two main things really. Uh, and and so mom took me to the doctor thinking I had mono. And then she mentioned the pain in my side, and and then my doctor noticed these little red dots on the bo- on the tops of my feet, um, which I really hadn't even noticed or paid any attention to. Um, and so uh, they drew some blood, and then we went off. And this is the crazy thing, because like I think of today, if if blood is drawn today, you're gonna hear exactly what ha- the results tomorrow. Um, right. But it was a holiday weekend. and we didn't hear anything back for, I think three days or something like that. Um, when we finally heard back, uh, on the blood test. So, uh, so yeah, so the blood was drawn on a Friday and I think it was a Tuesday. Uh, I had gone to school early in the morning on the first day back after Christmas break and just about passed out in the high school, um, and called that called my dad and he took me home and I just slept the whole day until the phone rang and it was a doctor saying they wanted, wanted my mom to bring me in. So, well, the, you know, the first, the first section of the book deals with your stay in the hospital, um, and, and the scenes of the day-to-day are so richly detailed. I mean, the, the specific medications the nurses are administering, the amounts, um, what you would have watched on TV, you know, uh, um, what you ate, um, things like that. Um, how did you go about reconstructing that time period um, in such a vivid almost diaristic day-to-day way? I started in 2004 um, when I was in grad school at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Um, I was studying creative nonfiction. 
uh, writing a memoir. Again, I keep going back and thinking, I wishing I could have done something other than a memoir when I was in grad school, given my newspaper background. Um, but in 2004, like I, I was, so I had written, I started that program in 2002. I finished it in 2005. Uh, but as I started writing a lot of the stuff, um, you know, the first couple years in the program, I started having, you know, I was writing this stuff and then I started wondering, well, when did exactly did that happen? And I would talk to my mom, uh, who was there most of the time and, and sometimes my dad as well, um, and say, well, do you remember when this happened? And they wouldn't remember and I couldn't be sure if something happened at a certain time or not. And so in 2004, the, the creative writing program gave me a grant to head back to Ohio to actually... Um, get some of my medical records. And that's kind of when that started. Um, on that trip, I actually um, made a, 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 sl- a little bit of a timeline on when things actually happened. Um, but I didn't have any very many details. And so um, in starting in, in about um, February or March of 2016, when I was still living in Ohio at the time, um, I started making trips up to the uh, up to Akron Children's because by that point in time, you know, it was only a forty minute drive for me. And um, one of my nurses, um, one of my nurses from when I was when I went to clinic uh, as an outpatient, uh, her name is Pam. She was still there, and so she called my medical records back from where they're stored, and just kept them in her office. So I could pretty much go up anytime I wanted and and look at them in her office. And that's when it really started like narrowing in and trying to identify exactly when things happened and exactly what things were like, what was going on um, in the room. Uh, And nursing, the nursing uh, medical records, especially like the nursing flow charts are amazing because they recorded everything that happened. I mean, they would come into my room at least once an hour and then write detailed notes about everything that was going on. They would make a note on who was in the room with me, what we were talking about. Um, they recorded how much I, I um, uh, peed and pooped. Uh, they recorded how much I puked. Um, they recorded what I ate. Um, mm. They recorded. It's, it's very, they're almost like journalists. Them, it's very interesting. It's like they're they're journalists in a way. It is in many, all this down. It is in many ways journalistic in terms of their they're recording um, exactly what was happening. Um, and so it was inc- really, really helpful. You know, I, I could go back and and, and find out, um, okay, well, on this day, my grandma uh, and um, a, a pastor from the church and my mom were all in the room, and uh, I was in a cranky mood. Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> like, giving one-word answers, and um, uh, or I was, I was feeling good, uh, or I had no complaints. So that's one of the... Uh, the, one of the most interesting things is patient has no complaints, but you know, I'm also thinking about like, maybe I'm just like, so annoyed by what's going on. I'm not going to say anything at all, but there are a lot of times when, you know, pa- uh, patient complains of, uh, a headache. Um, and that was really important for me, uh, finding the headache and also finding a time when I developed a fever, uh, for something that kind of happened towards the second half of my hospital stay when I developed an infection on my brain. I was able to go back and identify the exact moment the first time I developed a fever. And, and, so, and when you're reading those things in the notebooks, um, you know, patient is in a cranky mood today, or patient's grandmother comes to visit, did, those, did reading those things spark 
memories. I mean, I'm curious how, you know, often we block out traumatic events and, and we don't revisit them. How alive uh, was that period in your own mind for you, um, aside from the, from the, you know, the reporting that you're doing? You know, I think it was, it was pretty alive, um, but in like various states of aliveness. <laughs> I don't even know if that makes sense. Um, so there were like a lot of things that were really, really like um, things that I've always kept in my mind uh, as a memory that were were pretty clear, and I was pretty certain um, they're accurate based on um, other discussions that I've had with like my parents and stuff. Uh, like the like the one day when um, when I was supposed to have. Um, uh, they had scheduled a brain surgery, a craniotomy, craniotomy um, because I had these infections on my brain. And, um, and I remember that day so clearly. Uh, I remember certain aspects of that day so clearly. I remember sitting in my bed, and, and I remember the time when the, the surgery was scheduled for. Uh, um, and I remember sitting and looking at the clock and, uh, and like being nervous about as the time was getting closer and then I remember them walking in and saying that they were going to postpone it because the infections seemed to have gotten smaller based on a, a CT scan they did that morning. And I remember all of that. And I remember feeling like jubilant and excited. Um, but then there are also things that I, you know, like, so that's a pretty clear memory of how I was thinking and everything. But there were a lot of things that I didn't realize or didn't remember until I started reading those records. Uh, and I found out that the pastor from uh, the youth pastor from the church was in the room. Uh, when doctors came in and said that they were going to postpone it, uh, and that um, and that uh, um, my both my mom and dad were there, which I, I figured that was probably the case, uh, but also that um, that like I was so excited after that happened that I wanted to eat um, McDonald's, mm -hmm. and that's like in the nursing records, and I ended up eating chicken McNuggets, and you know, and that was pretty that was something because I really didn't eat a whole lot when I was in the hospital. Um, so it's funny that like some things, there are some memories that are really, really clear, but then the, the records, um, helped to make some other things clearer. Um, there was one, one record that I came across that really, uh, impacted me a, a, a pretty great deal. Um, and that was from like when I, before I was even in Akron, um, when I was at the, the Worcester community hospital, which is the, the community hospital that I went into, straight from the doctor's office um, after they called on the day that I passed out at school. And, um, you know, I had remembered uh, that night I watched the movie Hoosiers, or I remembered watching the movie Hoosiers at Worcester Community Hospital. Um, and for a long time, I had just assumed that I watched that on my second night there. Uh, but uh, I spent two nights there, and then on the third day, they took me to Akron. Um, and I had always assumed I watched that movie on the second night uh, at, at Worcester Community Hospital. Uh, but I actually came across um, uh, records from Worcester Community Hospital, which had been transferred to Akron, including nursing flowcharts, in which she's writing about um, um, coming in to watch, to sit down, to sit in the room with me as I was watching. She doesn't call it Hoosiers. She calls it she, patient is watching a video. Um, but I know it's Hoosiers because that was the only video I watched in there. Um, and, uh, and, and she mentioned multiple times that I was crying mm. and I did not remember crying. Uh, I remember being a, 
I remember being nervous, like, once they told me I was going to Akron. I don't remember being that, like, frightened or scared. Or I didn't remember being that frightened or scared or even confused, I think, on that first night. And clearly I was because uh, I was just sitting there and watching the movie. And she just she mentioned multiple times that the uh, patient has tears in his eyes uh, and that um, she would ask me uh, if anything was wrong. And patient um, says he's fine. Um, and I did I did not I did not remember that at all. Um, and. That really like that that um that got to me, especially when I came across that and uh when in in my nurse in, up in Akron um I don't know what it was I think it was like at that I as a forty one year old you know I was reading that or I was actually forty at the time and I think I like I kind of started to sense and I understand exactly maybe how frightened and confused I really was um, based on just you know life uh and other times as i got older and would be like near tears because of frustration or confusion or something and i actually finally kind of thought oh my god that's what i was feeling like and so that was really um it was really cool uh if a little sad (laughs) as well Hmm. um you write that with your cancer diagnosis and treatments that you became a new man and that you for a long time, you wasted a, a lot of time trying to be the mat you were before that day, before you entered the hospital. Um, what was the old Matt like, and and what replaced him? How how had you changed fundamentally? Oh man, when I was before I got sick, I would um, I was a uh, like a. I don't want to say I was neurotic. I don't think I was neurotic. I was like, at least in school, I was so concerned. Um, I I had to like get every answer right on every piece of homework. And if I had a hard class, I was constantly freaking out about what was going to happen with that. Um, uh, as a kid, when I was even younger than that, I was, I remember, uh, always being, this was the eighties. So just before, you know, you know, maybe a couple of years, three years, maybe when I was like 11 or 12, maybe I, I started reading the newspaper when I was really young. Um, and I remember being terrified that I was at some point going to get kidnapped by terrorists. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, the time of Libya and, and, um, Ronald Reagan was president and, you had all that stuff going on. I was like, I was convinced I was going to get kidnapped by terrorists, um, which maybe, I don't know. I don't want to say don't let your like eight year old read the front page of the newspaper, but that's what I was, you know, so I had that. So I was a very nervous, I was nervous about a lot of stuff. Um, but I also love sports a great deal. And so, um, I, uh, I played baseball, um, and uh, I always envisioned myself as I, I, I envisioned even like I think when I was in the second grade, I envisioned that I was going to play second base for the Chicago Cubs and that my my long term goal was to replace Ryan Sandberg once he retired. Um, and so uh, after I got sick, um, I still love sports, but I was completely unable to play them uh, at any level of um, uh to where I could be really, really good at them. Um, and so that changed. Um, but the biggest change was I really like stopped. I don't want to say I stopped caring, um, about stuff like schoolwork and, 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 and some stuff like that. 
but I stopped like um like stressing out about it. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I I started thinking, you know, I mean, it's not going to be the end of the world if I don't figure out this question. Uh, because guess what? Uh, not figuring out this question is not going to kill me. And I, I actually remember thinking that, you know, thinking, okay, is this, I wasn't going to get concerned about anything unless I could actually see it killing me. <laughs> um, and because I had already gone, because I'd already gone through something that, that almost mm-hmm. did. Um, now the terrorists, I guess they still could have, but I kind of saw <laughs> did that. You, as, did you see, I mean, you're, you know, the, thing about this is you're 15 years old which is a, a brutal time you know as it is just adolescence and hormones and everything and here you have to deal with this life-threatening situation very, very weighty and heavy even if you didn't fully maybe comprehend that at the time but when you go back to school or just your in your in your teenage life did, did, did that stuff somehow seem irrelevant because you you were you realized at 15 the, the great stakes of, of of life and realize mortality and that some of these minor things don't matter? Or was it more an outgrowth of just being a teenager and, and having those sort of teenager sulky moods and things? <laughs> I think I still had teenager sulky moods. Um, but I think part of that was um, for a while. And so like, I didn't, I didn't really ever come to grips with this understanding that, um, that there was a new Matt for maybe 20 years. Um, so, you know, even when I went back to high school, I was still operating under the same, um, mindset that, okay, Hey, I'm back, you know, uh, I'm the same person I was before. Uh, and part of that was, I just, I, you know, you're 15, you want to fit in at school. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be the person who's different. Um, and obviously I think I knew I was different, especially that first year I went back. I mean, I was still bald. Uh, I still had to miss like a week of school at a time uh, for treatments uh, occasionally. Uh, I still was going back to the clinic at least once every two weeks. Um, But I desperately wanted everybody to think I was just a normal person. And so um, I I really strive for that. Uh, And so um, I still think I I probably, I I think I was still, I didn't, get worked up about like schoolwork and stuff, but I still think I took like, um, the whole social scene of high school, um, this in a, in a way the same as I did before I got sick. I don't know. That's kind of weird to think about. I don't, I've never really thought about it, uh, in that context until (laughs) just now. Um, but I mean, there were still things that I would get worked up about, but, um, but not everything, I guess. Uh, you, you write, you also write, in the book that um, after your cancer had gone into remission that you had asked your doctor, uh, Dr. Kufis and other people, the nurses at different times to tell you just how sick you were. Um, and so how close were you to dying and why did you want to know that? What, what did ha- having that information mean to you? Um, so, okay. So that uh, a couple of things, the information to me, is um, I think um, I think I was being a uh, a journalist like long before I ever thought I would be a journalist. If that makes sense, I wanted the hook, right? The hook to a good story is this guy should have died, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. And so there's my story, right? Um, and I think that's really why I wanted that information um, when I was younger. Um, 
of course, now I think uh, uh, now that information is not as important to me because I understand a little bit more about how complex cancers are and how different they are and all these other things. Uh, but uh, I was um, I actually was very close. Um, I, um, I, I a nurse uh, who I've talked to a lot who had the records in her office, I think, told me that given the amount of leukemic cells uh, that were in my blood um, and the blood samples they drew in the bone marrow aspiration that they took, um, I maybe had two more weeks um, mm. uh, had I not gotten to a, to a hospital. Um, beyond that, while I was in the hospital, I was told that um, most of the nursing staff and even the doctors within the clinic um, did not think I was going to survive. Um, they, they, they thought I was just really, really bad, uh, that it was, that the treatments weren't going to work. Uh, and, and one nurse told me that they had, that at one point in time, because I kept being alive every morning when they came in and had their, or every, their weekly, um, updates on patients, um, one nurse said they actually started calling me the Energizer Bunny because each week I was, I was still alive and they didn't, and they were surprised by that. Um, so, so like, yeah, so I, I think I was close. It was close. Um, yeah. Well, one, one of the things you, that sort of comes out of that and you talk about, it, you write about it is this, this idea that surviving cancer, that somehow you were special, that, you know, you people, you were your family and you were in a, a religious community of believers and people told you that God spared your life and that that this meant you were destined for greatness. And did you, did you believe that yourself? And how did that thinking make its way into your career and your writing? Um, you know, I mean, it seems like it would put a lot of pressure on, on, on somebody um, if they felt like they, they were destined for greatness. Yeah. I, um, so I grew up in the Nazarene church uh, and I had a lot of people, um, tell me that, um, you know, that it was a miracle that I'm alive and that it was God who has kept me alive for a specific reason. And I think I believed that for, for a while. I don't, I don't anymore. Um, uh, I'm trying to, to remember where I was going with this. So, um, but that, that came up a lot. So how did that impact me as a writer? And, and maybe, maybe ask me again. I'm, I'm well, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, I'm wondering, it seems to me like if it, whatever you do somehow, it, it, you know, especially if you're in a creative field where there's an opportunity for fame or for accolades or prizes or, or these sorts of things, um, you know, did, did think how long, for how long did you believe that you were destined for greatness? Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, did that cause any kind of frustration or cause you to think about your career and your writing in a, in a certain way? Right. No, I, I, so actually the one thing that I was trying to, to spit out and I, and that's why I need to ask the question again was the previous question about like my wanting to know how sick I was completely mm -hmm. played into the whole, you were a miracle. There are special plans for you, right? Because I want to know, Okay, well, exactly how special plans are they? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> right. the closer I was to death, the more special the plans the are for special, me. Right. Um, which is completely like my mindset. I think 
um, even into like my maybe my early twenties, I think, in many ways. Um, like I've been telling people, I remember telling my grandma in nineteen, probably at Christmas, nineteen ninety seven. And, and she passed away earlier this year, unfortunately. But I remember telling her in 1997 that I'm writing a book about when I was sick. And that was like 1997. I hadn't even mm-hmm. been off treatment for uh, four years. And I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to write a book about how I'm a miracle. And, 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 you know, and that was my mindset. And I think that really shaped um, some early, uh, early thoughts on what I might write as a book. And, and that's kind of, I thought, okay, you know, I'm special. I'm going to be, uh, maybe I'll be, I'm going to be a famous writer someday. Um, but I, I should say that, um, like I wanted to be a famous writer, uh, I think even before I got sick. Um, mm. I, I think I always knew I was going to do some sort of writing. Um, and then I also remember in American literature class, I guess this would have been after I got sick. Um, but I remember thinking like, as we had to read like Huckleberry Finn and, and the great Gatsby and, and Ethan Frome that, I was like, you know what? Someday I want to write a book that's going to, in a hundred years, um, cause high school students like to hate me uh, because they have to read something that I <laughs> wrote. Um, so, uh, but I think early, I I, I stopped. Um, I kind of like started running into the qu- questioning this idea that I was here, that I'm still on this planet for a very special reason once some of the um, uh, people I knew who also had cancer started dying, um, especially some of the kids who uh, I knew. Um, and I think, uh, so So one of the kids I knew, his name was Todd. He died in 1992, um, October 92. And uh, and then at the end, for, end of the first semester of my freshman year in college, my friend Melissa, who I was probably the closest to out of, the three patients that I write about, uh, write about, um, she died. Uh, she relapsed and, and died in 1994. Uh, and so I think when that started happening, I started with these, like, I started having these questions in my mind that, you know, well, why, why would I have a special plan and not them? Um, and I was lucky enough, I think, to be in college at the time. So I took a lot of philosophy classes. Um, because I really wanted to like, I saw the, those classes as, um, a way to like train myself to try to think these things through. Uh, and then, and then my doctor, uh, Alex Kufis died in 1998. He died just about a month before, uh, I graduated from college. And I think that pushed me over the edge. Cause I started to think if seriously, if like, there's not a special, if there's not, if there's somebody who's if he's not special enough, I mean, the guy was, uh, an amazing researcher. He was one of the most amazing doctors that he was the most amazing doctor that I've ever encountered, uh, to this day in my lifetime. Um, if if there's not a special plan for him, I was like, there's not a special plan for me. And, and and so I think part of that was then that introduced a new question along the lines of, well, why, if I was so sick, did I survive? when these other people who are also so sick, not. Mm. Uh, and then, I mean, th- th- that seems to be, a, in a way, and I want to get to that, almost the central question of the book, you know, and you, and you, you ask it that plainly later in the book, you know, why, why did I survive when everyone else died? 
Um, let me let me just stay on this on the the book for a second okay. though, because I I, I um, you know I, you say and you just hinted about it in in your answer there that you were thought, thinking about writing a book back in 1997. Um, how is running with ghosts different in both form and the content? to those earlier versions of this book that you envisioned or maybe even started to try to write at 20 or 25 or 30. I mean, if this is, this project has been with you for a long time, I'm, I'm sure you've th- thought a lot about it and it's gone through various iterations. So tell me about the, the, the version now running with ghosts now and how it's different than those other books. Um, yeah, it's pretty significantly different. Um, uh, partly I think because, well, I mean, the early stuff, especially when I was younger, I was still like hung up on this um, idea of, uh, well, the story arc is I got sick and then I got better, right? I mean, because that's that seemed like a nice story arc, um, but it didn't like um, uh, like. But then you know, I, so that was originally my thought, and then I got to grad school, um, it's for an MFA, and I'm thinking, and I was like, well, I, you know, I start actually studying memoir a little bit more and understanding its form and, and everything. And, and then I start thinking like, that's not a good story arc because like the whole point of a story arc there, like I got sick, the reader is going to read because they want to know if I survived, but I'm writing a book. So clearly I survived. (laughs) Um, So I I kill the narrative arc just by take the the suspense away. Exactly. So, um, (laughs) So by the time I was in grad school, I kind of, um, I think I started my, my MFA thesis, um, was actually called sick cookie. Uh, and it is very heavy. There's a lot more about me being in the hospital. Um, uh, a lot more about going to clinic, a lot more about me in high school. It's still, of course I, I was doing that from 2002 to 2005. So I was 27 to 30 years old. Um, uh, there, so there's a lot of that there, right? A lot of, um, mm-hmm. uh, still focused on, uh, got sick getting better now. What am I doing? That type of stuff. And also kind of dealing with trying to understand the deaths of, of, of some of the people I knew, uh, and the people I was close to. Um, I think this book, the way it shows up now, um, I think it just took me 10 years to like figure out to come to an answer that I was happy with that answers the question of why did I survive? Um, and, uh, and so I think, I think in the previous iterations, I, I don't think I really ever addressed that question or maybe I threw it out there, but I didn't try to answer it. Mm. Um, yeah. You, you talk about, um, the way that cancer, you know, crept into your writing in other ways. Even though you know, worked many years as a journalist at a, at a newspaper, you would do assignments that uh, brought you in touch with cancer, cancer patients. You suggested an assignment to your editor uh, about the son of Dr. Kufus. Um, I mean, having cancer is such a monumental experience, and it was probably the defining experience in your life, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, was it difficult to find a way to write about it that felt wholly satisfying, that, you know, that, that felt like it was encompassing all the complexities of it and, and that you, you know, to, to use a baseball metaphor, I mean, you sort of got the sweet spot of the bat and, and you were going to 
hit a home run with with the with the way that you were writing about it. Um, I truthfully, I don't know like what this says about my personality, but like, um, it's never been that hard for me to write about. Uh, it has been mm. emotional, I think. Um, but that has come from writing about um the people I knew who didn't survive. It's never been hard about writing about what I went through, which is kind of weird. Um, I used to, I remember going to like, I think I, I, I wrote an essay called moles. Um, and I mean, there are little snippets of it that show up, uh, I think in the, the first chapter of the third section of the book. Um, that was that I think I outright, um, admitted to like, being proud of the fact that I had cancer because it gave me amazing content to write with, to write about, which is <laughs> kind of crazy, I think. Um, but, but I, it did keep popping up and, um, and, and so many things. And I didn't really start realizing that until I was started getting older as well. Like I was able to see exactly how it was um, moving into everything I was writing about. And that get, has gotten a little bit annoying from time to time. Uh, and I, and, uh, you know, in terms of as a writer, I would, I, I'm desperately like wanting to write. I, I would love to write about something even about myself that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with cancer, but I've also mm-hmm. kind of come to the realization almost through this book that I don't know if that's even possible anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, given, how I think now I see it has shaped my life. Yeah, and and all aspects really. I mean, and yeah. conti- and continues to. I mean, um, you know, I want to just go talk a little bit more about the the wording of the book. I mean, a big part of the book, and I think really one of the most moving sections of the book is when you go back and learn about your your fellow patients Melissa and Todd and Tim I believe mm-hmm. is his mm-hmm. name um, and and as well as Dr. Kufis and a nurse uh, uh, Janet that um, you know they all passed away mm-hmm. and um, and it, it's interesting because it you know you your memories of them are as memories are kind of incomplete and somewhat faulty um, you know why did you want to go back and and um, illuminate their lives and 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 what was that process like? Well, I think I you know this the reason I think the whole book took turned out the way it did. It, it kind of stemmed from the piece that I wrote for SB Nation Longform in April 2015. It was called "The Ghosts I Run With," uh, which was kind of in many ways it's kind of there you know. Um, it was about how I started running and then started thinking about these people while I ran. Um, and that piece ran in April, 2015. And I almost immediately, uh, in that piece I wrote that Janet had breast cancer, uh, which is what I thought she had. Um, or at least it's what like, uh, uh, 2015 Matt thought she had. Um, and so, uh, somehow like um well i know exactly how but because it's addressed in the book um but like that evening uh, i was on facebook talking to janet's daughter um because it just so happened that my one of my wife's really good friends from college was janet's daughter's friend in elementary school they grew up on this in the same neighborhood uh and so 
you know, in that conversation with Janet's daughter, then she, she was like, Oh, she's like, first of all, very thankful, very happy that someone thinks about her mom. Um, but then she's like, but she didn't have, um, she didn't have breast cancer. She had gallbladder cancer. Um, and then, so I was like, Oh, okay. Um, and we fixed it in the story online and, and, and everything, but that really got me thinking, um, really made me start wondering, like, what do I actually know about these people who I think about all the time? Um, there was another thing that I had wrong in, uh, in the ghost I run with when I said that Melissa had, um, leukemia, uh, and she, that's, and that's not what she had. Um, she had uh, a rhabdomyosarcoma, um, and, uh, which I found out later, um, when her mom contacted me. Um, so, you know, so, you know, I, 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 I started like questioning my own memories of these people who I still routinely think about on a daily basis. Mm. And I thought like, I, I, if I'm thinking about these people, I want to think about them as they were and not as I have somehow distorted their memories of them. Uh, I also thought, you know, that um, that I had written a, a piece that was read by a lot of people um, about, like, Melissa and Todd and Tim and Dr. Kufis and Janet, and that people may have read that and, and gotten erroneous information about them. And I was like, ah, if I want to write about these people, I have to make sure that what I have is accurate. Um, and that's, I think, more the journalist in me than anything. Um and I did want to tell their stories because in many ways I came down, I, I came to that conclusion, you know, and the whole, why did I survive uh, uh, question? Uh, I kind of ultimately decided I had to answer for myself um, that like um, some Supreme being wasn't going to, at some point in time, send me a, a like an email saying, this is why you survived. Um, so just FYI, um, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I needed to make that that I needed to answer that question myself. And in many ways, because of my background as a reporter and because I wrote a bunch of feature obituaries when I was at the Columbus Dispatch, which to this day were my favorite things I ever wrote as a newspaper reporter. I kind of came to the conclusion that I could tell their stories and that other people could know who they were uh, and, and kind of carry their memories along with them. Um, the process, uh, I was very, very lucky, I think. Um, because like I mentioned with Janet's family, they reached out to me, uh, on Facebook at, like hours after the story ran because of our, our personal connections, uh, our, our mutual friends. Uh, and that was amazing. Um, uh, I had been in contact with Dr. Kufus's, um, uh, wife, Kathy, uh, in the past. Um, I had interviewed her in 2004, uh, when I was in grad school, um, and so, uh, but, but that was pretty much the extent of it. Um, but, uh, I was, uh, the, the story, the ghost I run with was, um, republished in my university alumni magazine at Ashland university, which is also where I was teaching at the time, but also I was an alum and, um, and, and, uh, Costa Kufis, who is now on the Sacramento Kings, uh, uh, his, his PR manager, it just so happened to be ended up was also an Ashland university graduate. And he read that piece in the alumni magazine and he got in touch with me and has been really great at helping me stay in touch with Costa, but also, um, Kathy Kufus, uh, uh, as well. Um, 
and then Melissa's mom uh, read it in the alumni magazine too, because she had a friend who graduated from Ashland who read the story and said, I think this guy's writing about your daughter. And so uh, Louise reached out to me um, and, and left and left me a voicemail and, and we got in touch that way. Uh, so I was really, really thankful that in many ways, like three of the families reached out to me mm-hmm. um, because as a reporter, the one thing I was dreading the most, even though I really wanted to do this, and I saw value in it, and I, I think I, and I knew too that the families would see value in it as well. But I, I dreaded, I always dreaded that first call, uh, and I don't know, um, you know, especially when you're calling somebody who has gone through something traumatic. And for me, it was almost even worse because it was 20 years ago. Right, um, right. You're I, dredging, dredging things up. And so that, I, you know, I, yeah. I likened it to I'm going to call these people and I'm going to rip off a bandaid that has been on for 20, 20 years. Um, right. And even though, you know, even though I know in my heart of hearts that I think they will appreciate it, there's still that, you know, that, that's, that can be traumatic, I think. Um, well, and, well, let me ask you about the, a few of the scenes. I mean, there's a scene where you go to um, Dr. Kufus's house, if I'm, if I'm correct about that, and there's a scene where you, you meet with Melissa's mother and, mm-hmm. and her her father, um, in those, in those moments, um, were you Matt Tullis, the, the, the cancer survivor and, and somebody who had, who had been in the hospital with, with that person's loved one, or were you a bit of the reporter and in a way that you, you know what it's like to be a reporter, you can mm-hmm. sort of hide behind your notebook a little bit. Uh, it allows you to take a, a situation and, and look at it more objectively and, and from a bit of distance. I mean, just the very act of getting out of uh, the notebook and starting to write puts you sort of, you're in the, you're in the room, but you're not in the room. Right. Right. Um, and so, and so what, you know, what, how did you approach those scenes? Who were, who were you in those moments? Now, that's a really interesting. So the, the time I was, uh, uh, at my doctor's house, um, uh, and this was in 2008, the, I think maybe February of 2008. Um, at the time, uh, I was at the Columbus Dispatch, so I was a reporter, um, and I was doing a story on Costa Kufus, who at the time was a freshman on the Ohio State men's basketball team, and he was a starter, and he was widely projected as he was going to leave after a year and, and probably be a first-round pick in the NBA, which ultimately he was. Um and so I, I wanted to do a story on him, um, partly because I knew his background. I knew that you know there was a there was a story there um, that the newspaper would be appreciative of. Um, but when I went to interview his mom, I, I specifically drove to Can. I could have done an interview with her over the phone um, mm-hmm. as a reporter, and probably that's what I should have done if I'm just being straight reporter, man. Um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm going to drive to Columbus, um, or I'm going to drive to Akron, which was about a, you know, almost two hours from Columbus. Um, and I'm going to interview her there because I wanted the ambiance. And that's what I argued with my editors. I was like, I need, I need to see her in the house where she lived with him and, and where Costa grew up and all that stuff. And you know, the stuff you tell your editors, so they'll approve some travel like that. Um, and, uh, and so when I was, but, but I'll, I'll say when I was there uh, for that interview, I would say um, I was mostly reporter Matt and um, p- 
part kind of survivor mat um I don't think I could um I don't think the two could be separated entirely um given mm-hmm. my relationship with her husband who 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 had been dead for um oh he was coming up on the 10th anniversary of his death actually um mm-hmm. and so that's I mean there's going to be that connection there but I was really um I was doing everything I could to keep the story focused on Costa and how he grew up while simultaneously trying to draw out little nuggets of information about my doctor. Right. Um, right. So that's kind of how that was. Um, I, I will admit, I, um, uh, I, I think at the end, uh, I kind of, um, uh, uh, um, like discarded reporter Matt and, and talked for maybe five or 10 minutes with, with Kathy, uh, if I can remember correctly, but I wanted, I, I really wanted her to know exactly how much, um, that, that, that Alex Kufis, her husband had meant to me and that, um, that I thought about him a great deal. Um, and was and, that, was that an emotional, uh, a heavy emotional scene for I, you to be in that house, I, to see family photos? I mean, you, you, of all the people that you, you write about who died, I mean, I think he's the one who affected you the most. So, I mean, what was the emotion of being in, in that house? It was, um, I think it didn't hit me until I left. Because um, mm-hmm. I think I was trying very hard to, like, not, you know what I mean? Because, you know, I was trying very hard right. to not lose it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty good. It was, it was... Um, it was, I think it was emotional. I mean, I had, you know, I had kind of forgotten what he looked like. And so I saw mm. a lot of photos of him, uh, all over the house still. Uh, and so that was really kind of, um, that was, that was really great. Uh, really good. I think the, the emotion hit me when I got in the car to, uh, head back to, um, to Columbus is when it kind of really dawned. And then I had a two hour drive ahead of me to where I could really think about what we, what, what I had kind of just experienced. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I, I kind of, I think I was able to mask it cause I really wanted to be the reporter there. Um, the meeting with Melissa's mom, um, was, uh, and I had a couple meetings at her house, um, a handful, uh, maybe three or four. Um, those were really different, I think, because I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have to be reporter Matt, you know, because I wasn't working for a newspaper. I wasn't doing a story for a magazine. I was writing my own story and so while you know there was reporting involved i i could kind of discard the more formalistic um uh newspaper reporter hat that i had worn uh that i wore i think when i when i interviewed kathy in 2008 uh so it was a little bit different i mean a little bit different you know uh type of thing yeah you 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 compare yourself at 15, um, unfavorably to, to your fellow patients, to Matt and, or I mean, to uh, Melissa and, and Todd and, and others, you know, you talk about how they, they seem more concerned with helping others. They seemed wiser. Um, Melissa was more spiritual and maybe more able to handle the prospect of their own deaths, more present in the moment. Um, when you're looking back now, you're writing the book and you were looking back, what did having cancer reveal to you about yourself, your own personality on a deep level? Um, and, and what did learning about more about the lives of these people who died, um, 
tell you about how to live your own life? You know, that's a <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, over the years, um, and maybe I didn't learn this um, like immediately after having had cancer, but I, I, I think I learned it um, because I've thought a lot about having had cancer. Um, I think I tend to think I'm, I'm, I think I'm a fairly, unfortunately, I think I'm a fairly selfish person. Um, I think about myself a lot, but, but then again, I also like, I, I mark that up to like, well, I wrote a memoir. Of course I think about myself a lot. (laughs) Um, I, but I really, I I think I do. I think, I I think, um, a lot of times my thoughts go to, well, okay, what's this going to do to Matt? Uh, I I think I'm more cognizant of that now. And I think I'm uh, hopefully less, so than I was maybe 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, I think, you know, becoming a parent also helps with that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, I really like, I really dawned on me once I started compiling and seeing all the information I kind of had gathered on, um, Tim and Todd and Melissa, especially, but also even, uh, Janet and, and my doctor, um, like all the stuff they did for other people. And even when they were sick too, um, and and that was a like um, that was a stark contrast, I think, to how I was when I was sick. Um, when I was sick, I literally wanted nothing to do with anybody. I just wanted to lay around and feel sorry for myself. And then when I realized I was going to be better, um, it was all about okay, what am I going to do now that I have been, you know, that I'm alive and that I'm special. It was all about I, I think. Um, uh, and so that was really, um, that was really kind of something to kind of see that all come together um, among all five of them, uh, that they all really did share this very common um, philosophy in life, I think. And, and maybe they had that because of what they went through. Um, or maybe not. Maybe that's who they were prior um, but I, I, I think more than anything, just seeing that gives, you know, like this idea of, um, making sure you're there for people who, who need help, uh, making sure that, um, you literally just try to make the world a better place, um, is, is kind of a good guide, guidepost to, to try to like point, point my, point myself to anyways. And I kind of, I think I kind of learned that as I was writing the book. Well, this is this is a similar question, but what I mean, what do you see as some of the long-term consequences of having experienced and survived cancer as a child, in terms of how you exist in the world today? I mean, are you did it make you more of a a risk taker because you you felt like you only you know I came so close to dying I I should live life fully or perhaps the opposite more more afraid and cautious about death? I mean, do you have do you live with a greater sense of your own um, mortality or time and the passage of time. I mean, what are some of the, what, 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 when you, when you look at your own personality, um, what do you see as some of the things where you could directly say, I think I do this or I behave this way or I'm this way in the world because I, I experienced this. Well, I think I, um, uh, you know, there's this, um, there's this, uh, I think it's like a business management book or something like that called, maybe it's self-help called don't sweat the small stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and I've never read it. 
But I have a feeling that that's exactly how I am now. I really don't get stressed out about almost anything. Um, I'm very, very laid back. Uh, and my students will tell you this too. I like to keep, uh, even my classes are, um, I like to keep them informal. I like to have fun. Uh, I like to, I, uh, I, I hate to like boil it down to like really horrible, like cliches, but YOLO, you I mean, you only live once. And so I'm very, I, I have this kind of, um, kind of, I tend to be kind of carefree in terms of, uh, how I approach life. Um, I don't think I'm a risk taker. Um, uh, I don't, I don't bungee jump. I'm not going to jump out of planes and stuff like that. Um, but then again, I decided to run marathons, which I think some people might see as risk taking. Um, but, uh, for the most part, it really has affected me. It's affected the way that like, how, how do I approach various, um, things that, for many people cause stress, uh, and for me just doesn't, um, like I don't get nervous standing up in front of a group of people and talking. I don't get, um, uh, I don't, I don't really care when, when editors reject stories. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. No problem. I'll pitch it to somebody else. Um, that, you know, it doesn't, whatever. It's not, you know, it's not going to kill me. It's so, not leukemia. It's right? not leukemia. It's exactly right. right. It's not leukemia. Right. Um, to that to that effect, though, I mean, there are some other like um, I think maybe um, some physical ways that it, that it has um, changed me physically, and that like um, you know there are late ter- long term effects of chemotherapy and radiation. Right. Um, and so uh, uh, for a long time. I completely ignored that. Well, I mean, that stuff didn't start popping up until like the mid 2000s, that that research um, when kids actually started surviving cancer, like in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, But uh, even in the mid 2000s, you know, once even once I started knowing that they existed, I was kind of, oh, whatever, no big deal, blah, blah, blah. Um, But as my kids have gotten older and as I've gotten older, um, I've kind of started taking that stuff a lot more seriously to the point where. Um, I see doctors so much more often now than I ever did. Uh, I've probably seen more doctors in this in the year that I've been in Connecticut than I did uh, probably in about 10 years in Ohio. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is um, maturity, but also this recognition that, hey, there are things that um, that could happen. Uh, not necessarily that, that, that I that, that I shouldn't be so carefree about. Uh, and that there are, and, and fortunately I think I'm, I, I was able to, you're, it's not the small stuff, but there are some of the big things that maybe you do want to sweat a little bit about. Uh, and I've kind of, uh, uh come to that point now in my life. I just have a, a couple more questions. Um, one of the things you don't talk about too much in the book is your parents and your family and how they were affected by the experience. I mean, you do early on, you talk a little bit about how your brothers didn't really know how to handle visiting you in, in a hospital and that your parents ended up getting a divorce and that they had, that you found out they were really on the verge of it before, before you got sick. Um, but to, currently, I mean, how do you think that, um, you know, seeing their child almost die um, affected them over the long term and affected the family? I mean, do you, do you guys talk about the experience frequently when, when our family get togethers, was it, or was it pushed to the side after your treatment? Um, 
you know, how, how, what do you think the effects were on, on your mother and father of, of going through this with you? You know, um, we don't talk about it. It's really kind of crazy. Um, we've, I've talked with my mom a lot about it, um, in the last year and a half because of, but specifically because of the book. Right. Right. So more, it's oftentimes, well, Hey, do you remember when this happened? It's more like factual fact checking type stuff. Um, and so we haven't talked about it and we never talked about it when I, when I got out of the hospital that I recall, I don't ever recall us all sitting to get down as a family and talking about it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I don't know. And my brothers and I, um, I, you know, I talked to my brother, John once about it. Um, uh, maybe a year ago. Um, but, uh, you know, but not really in depth, in depth. My brother, Jim, who's my younger brother, um, maybe, you know, we'll mention it in, 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 you know, just in glancing or in cursory. Oh, Hey, remember this or whatever. Um, but we've never really gone into any depth on it. Um, Mm. and I don't know why that is. Um, maybe that'll be the next book. Um, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, we j- it just became something that happened, and then we moved forward, and we didn't we didn't talk about it. So I don't um, know. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't. I really don't know how. You, you have to. Find yeah, out. I, I'm going to have to do that reporting next. So. <laughs> um, and now, now that you've written the book, this book that you have been thinking about writing for 20 years, um, do you you know do you think? Um, your history with cancer will have as prominent a place in your writing by writing this. Did it, did it, um, really kind of get something, get this material out? Um, you know, where do you see cancer and, and your creative life, um, going forward? You know, I can see, um, I, 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 I really don't foresee writing another book about having had cancer. Um, I, <laughs> and and I imagine I will write some. I'm actually working on something now, but it's something shorter for a website, and it's really more tied to like book publicity, um, which doesn't really count, I don't think. Um, but I, you know, I think I've I think I got it out, and I think um, I would love to move on <laughs> to some other stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, if I will ever even write another memoir, um, uh, I. I I don't know. Um, I, I does, have, does it feel, does it feel good to have a book of a project that you've been kind of birthing for 20 <laughs> right. years? Oh, it feels come out, come out into the world. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. I've got a, I've got a shelf in my office, a bookshelf in my, in my office here at Fairfield university. And it's the lower shelf. It's the lowest shelf. Um, and it's full. And I've always kept the shelf of, um, books by people that I know. Uh, and it's a really big show. There's a lot of books up there because um, I've gotten lucky to know a lot of people who have written books. And I've always like kept that shelf more like um, as like a motivator, I think, to be like, look, this is what you're shooting for. Uh, and so when I slid a copy of the Running With Ghosts up in there and in between a couple books from some of my creative writing professors, uh, I did that about two weeks ago. It was like greatest feeling <laughs> ever um but uh no i mean it, so that has been great it's been great um and you know i do have other projects um that that i think will happen uh at some point in time i know one the next one is actually going to be taking episodes of this podcast uh which i think this is number 54 now 
Um, and, uh, and, um, so that, you know, that's, that's 54 interviews, well, 53, not counting myself with, I think some of the best, uh, narrative journalists in the country, uh, not with some of the best, with the best narrative journalists in the country in which they talk about how they do what they do. Uh, and so, uh, in the process of working with a student here at Fairfield to transcribe all the episodes, um, which I should have been doing all along as I was going, but I never did. Uh, and I'm going to try to turn that into like a guidebook on how to do narrative journalism using all of that amazing, uh, stuff from, from the best in the business. So that's kind of the next project. Uh, and then after that, I have some ideas on some other books that, that I want to do at some point in time and, and maybe they'll happen and maybe they won't. Um, but, uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, I, best of luck with the book. I, I, again, I really, um, enjoyed reading. It was very, very moving. And, um, and thanks for, thanks for chatting and letting me interview you. Thank you for interviewing me. I'm Stephen Kurtz, and I've been talking with Matt Tullis, the host of Gang Gray, the podcast, a digital journalism professor at Fairfield University, and the author of the memoir, Running with Ghosts. You can find links to Matt's work on the podcast website, www.ganggraythepodcast.com. And Gang Gray is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Thank you for joining us. You can find just about all of our podcasts. We've done 54 of them now on our website, www.gangraythepodcast.com. You'll find all kinds of interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Justin Heckert, Jeannie Marie Laskus, Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Ben Montgomery, Chuck Klosterman, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Mac McClelland, and so many more. Just go to www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just go there and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Technical help, as always, is offered by John Scrata and Steve Cease. Noel Crouchley is a student assistant. This episode was hosted by Stephen Kurtz and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.